Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Shimon Dental Group. I've been going to Shimon for at least 25 years, and so have my kids. And one of the things this practice specializes in is Invisalign, using that system to improve patients' smiles and positioning, including my son Owen, who has just recently completed his Invisalign treatment. His smile looks great. He had traditional metal brackets and braces before that when he was in middle school, and he very much preferred the clear aligners of Invisalign, so heartily recommended by this family. To learn more, you can visit shimendental.com. That's S-H-E-M-E-N. Today's guest is John Rivette. John and I actually have known each other since we were teenagers, uh, but back then we were only acquaintances. I didn't know him very well, but I wish I'd gotten to know him better because today he's a hugely influential participant in Amarillo's art scene. He's a professor at West Texas A&M. He's a prolific solo artist whose work has been exhibited uh, everywhere from here to New York City. Uh, In fact, you can see one of his paintings hanging at Crush Wine Bar downtown. And John is an expert on Robert Smithson's Amarillo Ramp, which is a work of art that's almost as famous around the world as Cadillac Ranch, although I bet the majority of local residents haven't even heard of it much less have seen it. Uh, So we talk about all that stuff in this episode, including the local legacy of art in the panhandle from Georgia O'Keeffe to Stanley Marsh. So here's John Rivette. John Rivette, welcome to the Hammerello Podcast. Thanks for being here today. Hey, thank you, Jason. I really appreciate you asking me to be on. Absolutely. So I, I know that there's a lot of stuff that you're involved with that we will find our way into talking about. But before we get to any of that stuff, the, the thing I like to start with is just by asking my guest, why are you here? In so, Amarillo? In Amarillo. How did you uh, end up here in the first place? Uh, actually, I moved to Amarillo on my 13th birthday. Okay. Uh, very strange. Moved from Austin, Texas, uh, 1987. And my dad uh, had gotten a job as the air traffic controller at the Amarillo uh, Tower. And so we moved here. And I've tried to escape several times, but I always come back. That's uh, that's a difficult time to move, yeah. 13. Yeah, it was very strange. Uh, my first job was volunteering at the Discovery Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad made me ride my bike from over here in Sleepy Hollow to uh, to the Discovery Center all summer long, which is very interesting. Um, and it was it was interesting transition. I actually liked coming to Amarillo. Um, looking in hindsight, Austin was probably a lot cooler. But uh, you I don't liked, know that as a yeah, at a thirteen year old. Yeah, yeah, I had a pretty rough. Uh, fr- I was seventh grade year and then came to Bonham, uh, which didn't go much smoother. But it was, you know, something interesting. And, you know, there's something unique here that that keeps me here for sure. Did you recognize that as a kid? Like, could you tell, oh, this is is a way that Amarillo is different? Um, Well, the first time I came to Amarillo, like when we were visiting, it was snowing. And in Austin, that never happened. So that was very unique for me to be in Texas and see the snow and something that I hadn't grown up around. So it was very kind of appealing. And then... uh, You know, I always try to see things with a different light, so I found Amarillo relatively interesting. Tell me about your high school experience. Were you you an artistic kid? (laughs) I was, I was. Uh, I was in art classes. Uh, I was Latin club president, Um, uh, so basically I was just a big nerd. Uh, I was in all the honors classes. My mom taught German at the high school where I went, at Amarillo High School, so... 
Um, I was always in art. I think I had 157 average in my art class. That's uh, pretty good. I did so much uh, you extra had some credit. Success. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yet at the time, you know, your my parents didn't really understand that art was a thing you could do, and so you know, the question always is like, what are you really going to do? Uh, and so I kind of took a different path till till art really called me back. I think is the right way to say that. Well, tell me about it because I I think a lot of people still think well. Yeah, I guess you could study art in college, but eventually you're going to have to do something real. Yeah, that's true. Tell me about This is the pitch I use a lot. Uh, I do think that art is very important, and I do think that a lot of people assume that you go to college to get a job, and from my experience, that is very uh, rare. Uh, In fact, both of my parents got jobs in the fields, uh, not in fields that they went to college for. My mom went to school for psychology, and she was a German teacher. My dad went to school for biology, and he was an air traffic controller. Uh, Well, half of my job did didn't exist 10 years ago. Exactly. So Yeah, so there's lots of things there. And so I think, you know, to me, the real secret of college is learning to learn. And so I think whatever field you choose and dedicate yourself to is really the lesson there. And so I do think that art provides a lot of unique skills that aren't taught in other fields like self-reliance and critical thinking, which is a very important skill to have and uh, ownership of your work and work ethic. And so those things are all kind of natural to the art field uh, and teach you to be self-accountable and agreeable and to do a good job because you know you have to put that work out there so i think all those skills are really um valuable in any career field and you know i'm pretty honest with most of my students that you know you're probably going to have the same job you have now when you come to college but you're going to have a career outside of this and that grows you know the advice Hmm. we give a lot of students even at the graduate level is it's 10 years before you start really making any money uh, in the art world, but we don't do art because of money. We do art because we love it and right. it's good for culture. Yep. Tell me, tell me about your college path then. Like what, what uh, did you do? I went to school. I think, I don't remember what I started. I was really fascinated with philosophy. I took philosophy twice, the same class. Um, I took German, which I was born in Germany and my mother was a German teacher and that did not stick. Uh, and so then I took a break and I took about five years off kind of doing living in vans. I, I followed the Grateful Dead and hippie bands for a little while. And then it actually came, I came back to Amarillo and started working for Stanley Marsh, putting the signs up, uh, which is a very unique work environment. Uh, I exposed myself to lots of kind of different art ideas. And that's when I encountered the Amarillo ramp and kind of had some major life questioning moments and, and decided to put myself on the path of being an artist. So there's there's a lot of threads I could pull yeah, uh, from what you just said. Yeah. Um, let's put that aside and and start with your path into teaching, uh, because That's I know where one. you've ended yeah. up is you are you are a practicing artist. I your work has artist. appeared yeah. um, in a lot of places. It's gotten a lot of acclaim. Yeah. You're also teaching art at the college level. How did you figure out that's kind of how you're going to divide things? Uh, I I didn't. Uh, I think it seems to be I'm pretty good at teaching. Uh, I come from a long line of teachers. In fact, almost everyone in my family is a teacher other than like my dad. Uh, my, My grandfather was a principal of a uh, school in uh, Long Island, New York, actually where I think the president of WT went, which is very strange. Yeah. Um, My grandmother was a teacher. My aunts and uncles are teachers. My mom is a teacher. Uh, I spent a lot of time as a kid in schools waiting for my mom to be done doing after hour work. And so I think education's always sort of been natural to me, even in classes college classes when I was younger, uh, I was kind of the person who would talk to people and be able to explain ideas. And so teaching seemed to be a natural fit. Uh, I, I talked, I taught my first class in 2004 at WT as a graduate assistant. 
and it just sort of naturally worked. And then I moved to Albuquerque and actually got a job as an adjunct instructor at a, at a local design school there and really um, kind of naturally integrated into it, ended up writing curriculum and courses and kind of learned how to teach college from that. And then came back to graduate school or finished my MFA here at WT uh, and was told by one of my professors I would never teach at WT, um, which lasted a semester. And Why is that? Uh, I think what we try to do in graduate programs is everyone says they come to graduate school to teach. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not the real reason you're supposed to come to graduate school. You're supposed to come to graduate school to perfect and develop an artistic idea and express and master your creative expression. Um, but teaching is a big goal there. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's why that was said because that idea only lasted a semester. I started teaching in 2009 as a GA. Okay. And then when I graduated, uh, I started teaching full-time as a PTI. Then I was hired as an instructor. And then I was hired as the full-time faculty uh, as the assistant professor of painting and drawing. I have since been tenured. And now I'm the director of the art program at WT. Tell me briefly about that program because WT is not known as an art school. WT is an agriculture school. It's a school of nursing. It's got a very strong school of business. What is what is the art program like? And, and who's uh, it's very it? small. I would call I like this called a boutique program. Uh, we uh, have about a hundred students on average. There are five professors, one instructor, and we have a couple of PTIs who work for us. We are actively trying to grow the program. Uh, we have hired a couple new professors. We just recently brought in Misty Gamble, a sculpture professor, who, and she's wonderful. Uh, is doing a really great job. We are now searching for a digital media professor. So we are trying to kind of grow the program. Uh, we really get to personalize the degree for most of our students, meaning once they kind of get past the core, uh, we have honest conversations with them. Are you, what are you going to do with this when you're done here? Mm -hmm. Are you going to graduate school? Are you going to teach? Are you going to go work in a gallery or a museum? Um, so we really do um, foster that. We also play a lot to the regional history of art here. You know, I, I mean, uh, it's, it's got the Georgia O'Keeffe legacy does, attached to it. It does. So it does. Uh, Georgia, I literally have Georgia O'Keeffe's job that she held a hundred years yeah. ago here on campus or uh, at WT. Um, my colleague, Amy, Dr. Amy Von Lintel has done a lot of work on it and she actually put a book out called Georgia O'Keeffe's wartime records. And it's very strange to read her writings about Canyon a hundred years ago. And not a lot's changed other than there used to be a train between Canyon and Amarillo, which I wish we had still. Yeah. Um, it's but, no longer dry. Uh, it's very interesting. And she's really nailed some ideas. So to have that legacy there um, is really important. I do think Amy and I specifically have really have um, worked well with sort of accessing the local regional art and especially specifically the modern and contemporary work around the region. Okay. So her legacy is, is, not particularly complicated or controversial. Who? Georgia O'Keeffe's. Oh, not really at all. Um, but I let's mean, let's yeah. talk about one that that is um, because I I know that a lot of listeners have a an opinion about Stanley Marsh, um, whether it's related to his artwork, to his um, you know the the personal qualities he may or may not have had, and his impact on this area. And so we've talked a lot about stuff like Cadillac Ranch, um, you know, on this podcast, but I haven't had the opportunity to talk to anybody who was that close to him, you know, and worked for him with, with the dynamite museum. So tell me, Tell me a little bit about your experience and, and um, kind of where you land on, on who he was. It was for the most part positive working for Stanley. Um, I do think that for me, it wasn't just about Stanley. It was getting to know his family and people close to him and meeting a, a greater community of people here in the town that I'm still friends with. 
Um, I think that what Stanley did for me was tell me I could be an artist. Uh, and no one had ever told me that before. Even my own parents weren't supportive of it. And he was very much, hey, this is who you are and this is what you do. And he put me around other artists and we got to kind of act like artists in this strange microcosm. Uh, and I do think that was really important for me. So it validated me in, in, in deciding to become an artist in the long run. Was he an easy person to get along with? No, uh, he and I did not see eye to eye on a lot of issues. I do think that he had a grand vision and I do think we in Amarillo should be grateful for the things he's put here. What does that do in terms of later things in his legacy? I, I don't, I don't have answers to that. Um, I don't really know. I wasn't around for a lot of what the bad press has talked about. Um, I can say when I work for him, it wasn't like that. Uh, it was different. And I worked more for his wife really at the end mm -hmm. of the day. Um, though I did participate in, in, in projects and things like this, but what I was the time frame? Uh, I worked different phases. So I worked in the mid nineties, putting up the signs on occasion. Okay. And then I came back in the early two thousands and worked more as a ranch manager capacity. Um, I basically did grocery shopping and delivered cakes. <laughs> That's what I did. Uh, so it was, it was very interesting on that realm. And I, I, you know, what you don't hear about a lot when you hear about Stanley is Wendy and Wendy Marsh was a gem and a truly great soul. Uh, and she really, you know, fostered my education, supporting my children's education. Uh, and so I do think that while Stanley gets a lot of the press, there was a whole community of people around him that were really good people and, and supportive of the community, such as Mary Emini and Hunter Ingalls, the late mm -hmm. great Hunter Ingalls. Um, the lads, all these people who have done a lot for our community were kind of peripheral of that. And I think that um, Stanley was sort of the shining star of that group. But I do think a lot of those people around him get don't get recognized. Okay. And I also spent a lot of time talking about the artists rather than the patron of the art. Um, I do think that when people hear about Cadillac Ranch, they think of Stanley and it's not Stanley, it's the ant farm. He was a contributor to that and he did help pay for it. And he was, you know, working with them, but those people were successful artists. I mean, Chip Lord is still around and was professor emeritus at university of California. So uh, I do think these things are important. You know, I talk about Amber ramp, which was Robert Smithson. Um, we talk, talk about even as in terms of the sign project well that was stanley's it was a group of us and we did right. make decisions and it was something that we as the artists who participated see as a collaborative effort um and so i do think it's important to separate the patient from the art can you put that that larger body of art and, and we'll get to amarillo ramp in a moment mm -hmm. but thinking of the things that stanley marsh was involved with from people living in this community, it's hard to have a good perspective on that because mm -hmm. we're immersed in it. We mm -hmm. see the signs still today. Cadillac Ranch is just part of the culture. But as you know, a, a professor of art and someone who can look at its impact outside Amarillo, like what do local people not really understand or get about what he kind of built here and, and who he was. I just for this don't think area. they get it and from an like artistic can't standpoint because uh, unfortunately the art world tends to be a little bit elitist. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that when you have these, what we'll call highfalutin art theories, uh, people get lost in that. And so they do just see it as fun. Uh, I gave a lecture in London about the art here. Uh, and the thing that people really were blown away by were the signs. The signs are mm -hmm. a very unique project and a very interesting thing and removed from its context of what we know of it here in Amarillo. It's a very fun project. The Cadillac Ranch 
you know, I think they did the study, a million people a year get out of the car and go see the Cadillac Ranch uh, to say that they're, I mean, that's arguably one of the most viewed sculptures in all of time. Um, Emerald Amp, not very viewed, uh, but a very intellectual, conceptual piece and held in high regard by the uppermost echelons of the art world. And so I do think that Amarillo has this thing that people from here don't see. And I think this really is brought to the light to me by my international graduate students who I realized came to this very exotic place. You know, they're from Thailand and Turkey and these places I imagine of, of exotic and strange, but they come to Amarillo, Texas, which looks like the cowboy movies and there are real cowboys and um, it smells like poop every once in a while here. Um, so I do think that there is an exotic quality here that we, we tend to overlook because we're so immersed in it. And they come here aware of those art projects. They come uh, here. No, no, not always. No, they come here. I think just to, because to get out and okay. there's a lot of romanticism about this part of Texas. Okay. Uh, so that romanticism is a bigger draw than yeah, say, I would say, I mean, we are working on that and I am working actually with the Holtzmithson foundation to sort of work some sort of formal, uh, agreement into our education with the Emerald ramp and other projects. And Amy has worked with the O'Keefe estate and people like this. So we do have, some legitimate connections in the educational standpoint. We just haven't really marketed that yet. Okay, so let's talk about Amarillo Ramp because right. it's one of those pieces of art that is known worldwide by people who are aware of land sculpture mm -hmm. or um, that, that sort of large-scale public art. But I know that maybe 98% of Amarillo is not aware of it. No, they Or has aren't. absolutely never seen it because it's hard to get to. Oh, uh, you have to know. You have to know right. how to get there, and you can't just go out and see it. Uh, I mean, so, it's so unknown that I met a graduate heart student in Lubbock who grew up on the cowboy at the cowboy house, maybe two miles away from Amarillo Ramp, and didn't, didn't know, know it was there. there. Yeah. So tell me about it. Let, yeah. let's, let's educate listeners about this world-famous public art project that most people the living most five, year, five miles <laughs> yeah. from it don't yeah. know exists. Uh, yeah, well, the Emerald Ramp is a sculpture um, by Robert Smithson. Robert Smithson was a very famous land artist uh, in the early 70s. It was built in 1973. Uh, unfortunately, Robert Smithson died during the construction of the Emerald Ramp in a plane crash, um, and so this was his last work. As a result of that, there are three sort of monumental land art pieces by Robert Smithson, that are kind of viewed as the quintessential land art works, Emerald Ramp being probably the least known of all of those, Spiral Jetting being the most known, which is in the Great Salt Lake. I mean, it's been on many photographs, and if you look up land art in any art history book, it's, there's a picture right. of the Spiral Jetty. Um, Smithson became sort of a cult figure in the art world because of his writings. He left an immense amount of art, uh, art writing about entropy and different applications of I, I art. Um, it, and it's a lot of this has cultural relevance today in the way he talks about things. Um, the Emerald ramp itself is built about 15 miles Northwest of Amarillo in a dry lake bed at the time when it was built, there was water there. Um, it is a 150 foot in diameter circle of earth, uh, that rises uh, from zero feet to 14 feet. And it's pretty anticlimactic when you see it. You go out and see it, you're like, what is this? This is a pile yeah. of dirt. 
However, you may not even recognize yeah, it. Yeah, you would if, maybe, and that's probably why the cowboy, because there's cowboys out there. I mean, I even took, I remember going out one time and there was a new cowboy and he didn't know about it. And so I took him to see it and he was literally like, where's the statue? Yeah. Like, it's not a statue. It's a sculpture. It's a sculpture about different ideas. Um, and really Smithson dealt with this idea of entropy and how entropy is a way that we can gauge and uh, track time. Uh, and his idea is that, you know, once things move forward in entropy, they can't really be reset or go backwards. And so he really was in this inner, in this idea of um, using art as sort of a sounding board. And for me, the Amarillo Ramp represents a bigger idea, something bigger than what we normally perceive, meaning that Smithson built that work and built his works to last centuries, to be millennia, to, to leave artifacts for people of the future to look at. Um, he, he wrote this very famous essay called The Monuments of Passaic, where he walked around New Jersey and realized that it was a lot of the industrial ruin that the archaeologists and the aliens of the future will find. Mm -hmm. And so he really wanted to use that vernacular, the industrial vernacular to make work. Uh, and so these land art pieces uh, were not constructed by him specifically, but by just your general guys who built jetties or built dams out in the middle of nowhere. And he really kind of liked that idea that if we as humans are going to leave marks on this planet, let's leave beautiful marks or intentional marks. Mm. Um, and the Emerald Ramp for me really represents a synthesis of his two different ideas of the spiral jetty and the, the other pieces, the broken circle spiral hill in Holland. And to me, it represents this idea of change and growth and just realizing that it's, there's more to it. You know, when you look at this sculpture, I've been out there a hundred 200 times and it's always different and it's always a different experience for me and for me it's become a gauge like i can remember the first time i went out there and i can remember the time i was out there last right. week uh and what's how grown up it's on it? shift and what's moved and how power lines have moved in and what can i see and how many new lights there are on the horizon who am i taking out to the emerald ramp this time and so every time i go out there is sort of like a reset for me it's much more of a meditative piece hmm. a, a lot of people i've seen go out there and kind of have this uh, I wouldn't say crisis of conscience, but you know, they get out there and they spent time to get to Amarillo and it takes 30 minutes to get out there and you have to call somebody and you have to make it into an adventure and you get out there and it's this pile of dirt and you're kind of like, well, what is this? But I think that anticlimactic nature uh, forces jump, jump starts a conversation hmm. with people, meaning that, well, you start questioning, why did I do this? And why is this important? And what is really important about this thing? And really what's going on here? And so, I think by jumpstarting that internal dialogue is really the intent of that work and it should be the intent of most works of art. And know? what what may surprise people is that Smithson had such an international following and this being one of, not only one of his three best known works, but the one that he died while yeah. you know, completing, that Amarillo almost is a, a pilgrimage point for some of his fans. And so you have people, and I'm sure you've taken people out there that have come to Amarillo from Japan or from Europe All over to the world. see yep. this piece. Yep, completely. Do you do you have any idea beyond the potentially anticlimactic, you know, viewing of it out there in the middle of a, a ranch? Um, do, do you have an idea of, of the impact that maybe this area has on them or, or why oh, they came specifically. I do think that's part of the thing is you don't realize you're going on an adventure. You don't realize it. And a lot of people, especially from Europe or from even the East Coast, haven't seen a cowboy, haven't seen cows, haven't been out in the middle of nowhere, aren't used to literally being in the middle I mean, of nowhere. There are nowhere. cows out yeah, there too. No, I, mean, I mean, I've driven past cattle roundups out there with people and they love that, you know? And so it is an adventure. 
agriculture. Um, I mean, specifically for me, it, it connected me to the agricultural history of the region that I didn't really understand. You know, when I went to high school here, cowboys were the guys who picked on me and called me nerd. Yeah. And, you know, but I realized those were people dressed as cowboys. They weren't real cowboys. And actually working at Emerald, I met real cowboys who are genuinely good people and people who are out there living off the land and presenting this kind of idea that's very mythic but very important to who we are as as a culture and as americans um i do think it connected me to a bigger picture of the agriculture influences of the region uh, i'm fascinated with these types of things um the lake itself was a man-made lake and at the time it was for this key line irrigation system uh, which was supposed to be this innovative more environmentally friendly way to bring water to arid cattle ranches Obviously, it didn't work and people still to drilling, but it does have a history of agriculture to it, to the to the main fact that 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 the ranch it's on, the frying pan ranch has some of the oldest barbed wire in the country. Mm -hmm. And the family who funded it is direct lineage of Joseph Glidden, the inventor slash marketer of barbed wire. So there is a history to that. And the idea of agriculture is just fascinating to me. I mean, I went to a milk uh, dairy farm or, or I guess a dairy the other day and just to watch how these things are, are manufactured and watch how these things are handled is, is just bewildering. I love it. It's such a weird structure. And I think the Emerald Ramp is like a little glint of that. Like it's this beginning point where I was able to continue this long journey into the art world and also to kind of connect to this to the roots of this region that I was really removed from to understand why this why we were here and what the history of this region is about. The connection between this region and the art world is one that I think for a lot of people is surprisingly strong. I mean, when mm -hmm. you start to look at Emerald Ramp or you mm -hmm. look at the legacy of Stanley Marsh or even, you know, Georgia O'Keeffe, that this place that is not considered a place of great beauty by some people um, could end up having so much influence uh, in, in, you know, the, the art world. Yeah, Tell me about that connection. Well, it's a beauty. You just have to pay attention to it. Again, okay. it's like one of those things you sort of have to pay attention to. I do think it's that similar effect of driving out to Emerald Amp and being like, oh, what's, what is this? And it's that sort of uh, that lack of inspiration at first that forces you to find the inspiration. I mean, to say it's not beautiful here is ridiculous. You've never seen a sunset. I used to live out on Mariposa, which was this eco village, and it's a high point. And so I was surrounded by clouds and sky my entire day. And that's a gorgeous thing to live in. I mean, to be able to come home from a stressful day at work and watch sunsets that relax you or storms off in the distance, that's wonderful. And Paladero Canyon, I live now, I have a, I bought, the best thing I've ever done was buy a season pass to Paladero Canyon because I go all the time now. And it's such a gem, like to realize that this beautiful, amazing place is just around the corner is wonderful. I mean, I, I'm obviously very biased and I love the aesthetic here, um, but I do think that the landscape here forces you to pay attention just a little bit more. I don't want to get through this conversation without talking about your own art because I imagine it's something that a lot of people may have encountered if they've Probably, gone to Crush yeah, or someplace some like things, that yeah, yeah. And, and maybe don't realize that. Yeah. So you have a very unique style, at least where you've landed. Yeah, um, definitely. Describe it, was, it. I mean, this is this is not well, a visual actually medium. Does but stem out of Amarillo Ramp. Uh, Amarillo Ramp is a circle. It's a geometric structure. Uh, Smithson used a lot of geometric motifs in his work. Um, the spiral jetty, obviously, being one of the more famous ones. But the Amarillo Ramp in itself is actually not a complete circle. It's a broken circle, and it changes elevation. And if you imagine the Emerald Ramp is a slice of a spiral, if you think about it in the terms of a slinky, imagine stretching a slinky out 
I'm cutting a small sliver of that slinky. That's what the emerald ramp form is. And if you look down the slinky, it looks like a spiral. So mm -hmm. he is referencing a spiral. Um, specifically, I like to say he's referencing the time spiral, which is the thing they show you in geology class of this big spiral of history. And then the little slice at the end is like, this is where humans exist. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I love that. Um, geometry is something I've always been interested in. in, in um, when I was Latin club president, um, I, I can't speak a lick of Latin to you other than the standard stuff, but I can tell you about all the art history I learned and all of the classical knowledge I learned from that class. Um, and I do think there is the idea that the Greeks specifically were putting ge this geometric structure or learning to defy the universe through this geometric structure uh, that the Romans took and, and you know made into what we consider classical art. However, what people don't talk about is that Greek knowledge was really transferred over to the Arabic communities in the Arabic, specifically Baghdad and that kind of center of knowledge during the what we call the Dark Ages for Europe. Uh, and how that knowledge sort of transferred around North Africa and then came back up into Europe and Spain. Uh, and so that that kind of divergence is really where I became interested in okay. these geometries. Um, and you'll a, see that like in, in the Islamic world. Yeah, exactly. With, with so that Islamic art and, and those patterns that, I was using, yeah. specifically in the paintings at Crush, uh, were influenced by that idea of it's not about Islam to me, but it's about this higher knowledge, this mm -hmm. secret a knowledge. A mathematically based Yeah, exactly. Artistry. And it, it provides a control. And I love that fact that I can look back at artists 2,000 years ago who are making work that relates to what I do. And it, it does come into the history of abstraction and and this idea of these kind of formal concerns. Uh, but the work I now am work making is based on these geometries. And so I use these geometries sort of as a control in these ideas that I um, break down and kind of develop in terms of, especially in my paintings, in terms of color palette and gradient and composition. Um, I'm very interested in dynamic symmetry these days, which is uh, taking these structures and, and making them a little bit more exciting. I mean, I could go off for hours on the mathematics I, I, I of the sure art behind it. Yeah. Tell uh, me, well, here, yeah. here's something that I would like to know. Yeah. Um, you know, successful artists, especially commercially successful mm -hmm. artists, discover their style, dig into that style, perfect that style, mm -hmm. and like continue doing a similar kind of thing. I mean, you see somebody like Picasso who has these different periods, but you know, we know Picasso because of the cubism and, and yeah. stuff that he began to do. How do you, as a, as a working artist, like how do you sort of refine what you do to get to a style that has that balance of fulfilling you as an artist while having some commercial success? You can see your stuff and crush. You know, you didn't go to art school thinking, I'm going to learn how to do these, <laughs> you know, geometric patterns and make a living yeah, on that. So I, I tell, me, that. tell yeah. me about that process yeah. of kind of refining it. Um, it would, it's more about finding the thing that works for you and kind of giving yourself permission. I mean, because a lot of people, when you get into art, you, it's all about rendering. You got to draw exactly like this way. And I, I have, I mean, I love figurative artists and some of my favorite artists are representational um, but to me, abstraction and moving specifically into geometric abstraction represents this purity that just sits with me in my in my head. Like, and it, what it has been able to do is take all of these complicated ideas or even these emotionally loaded subject matter uh, and simplify it and present it in this beautiful form. And so, really, I view art as alchemy in a way. Like, I take all of this heady, maybe even traumatic experiences in my life, and I'm able to process them in this sort of mathematical formula and, and um, very structured decision-making process to make this kind of beautiful object that necessarily doesn't release a lot of that stress or frustration I felt, but it does allow me to 
present it in a way that is beautiful mm-hmm. and appealing to everyone in, 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 in a manner. Um, and I think that that act of letting those things go and, and forcing them to become beautiful is a very healthy and cathartic practice yeah. for in me. In a very controlled mm-hmm. design, yeah. too. I yeah, mean. exactly. I mean, I mean, it can come from, and all my work comes from photography, or, or actually a lot of things I've been working on are, are other artworks. Um, in fact, I have paintings about an emerald ramp, or that's the beginning place for me, but they always represent more. Uh, and so it, to me, it, it's this idea of using this geometry to take a complicated, possibly emotionally laden subject matter and turn it into something beautiful. So I, I want to close this section by talking about the area itself, because it, it occurs to me that you are not just a working artist and an art professor, but also a bit of a free spirit. I mean, you you lived in a van and followed the Grateful yeah, Dead. I, mean, I that's, did. I did. Yeah, that's that's as as yeah. far into that as as maybe a lot of people would want to get. Yeah. So, but you're living in a place that's not known for always being uh, welcoming to free spirits. I mean, definitely it cultivated true. Stanley Marsh, and, yeah. and so there's something here. But talk to me about you know some of the, I guess some of the challenges and and what you've why you're still here, you know, why, why you're making your work in a place that's not always receptive to it. Um, well, I think there is a level of isolation that allows me to make the work. Um, I remember talking to Larry Bell, who is a relatively successful world famous artist and he has a studio in Taos, but he also has a studio in LA and he works in New York or he has, you know, places in New York he goes, but he's like, I can't get anything done in LA and New York, too many distractions. Hmm. Uh, and so I think these rural areas provide us a little bit of space and time to work here. Also, I think, like, or I'm just sort of a punk rock jerk, uh, and I think standing my ground is part of this, but I do think one of the advantages here is Amarillo forces you to have self-determination. If I can do this here, I can do this anywhere. I do this because I love it, not because there's a gallery here that wants me or I don't see any tangible forms of commercial success available to people here. I mean, unfortunately, the advice I give to a lot of my students is, go somewhere else if you're going to continue art career mm-hmm. um, because there's just not a gallery support system here for it. And I think that the reason I'm here specifically is because I do see this place as a place of change. This is if change is going to happen, it's going to happen here. People in New York think one way. People in Georgia think another way. People in Alabama think another way. And I think that people in the Texas panhandle will think certain ways, but I also do see them receptive to new ideas. And I do think with my position as an educator and an artist, I actually can get some traction contributing and helping change happen. That, I mean, that entropy that mm-hmm. Smithson relied exactly. on happens in places exactly. just like it does It's landscapes. gonna happen here, it's gonna happen anywhere else. I mean, I really view this as the front lines of culture. This is where it's happening. I mean, I had a conversation with people from San Francisco last week taking at an Emerald ramp. Like, and they were like, we live in our bubble. I'm like, this is not the bubble. This is the place where it is. And you see it happening. And while I'm confused a lot of the times on what's going on with people specifically now, I would say the last year has been one of the most confusing years ever. I do think that uh, it is a place we could still have that dialogue. And I do think, um, while I miss the open dialogue that is generally marked American culture, um, I do think that me with a personal history here allows me to maintain conversations with people uh, in other places I wouldn't be able to talk to. The presenting sponsor for this episode of Hey Amarillo is Terra Accounting and Consulting. Now, I'm an entrepreneur. In fact, I'm launching a new venture right now that you'll probably hear about pretty soon. 
And this requires managing a whole bunch of different things. So anytime I can outsource stuff beyond my expertise to somebody who knows what they're doing, that's, that's always a good decision. Well, Terra Accounting and Consulting understands this. They're a CPA firm built for doers like me. They help business owners build financial strategies that pave the way toward increased profitability and personal financial growth. So call Terra Accounting to schedule a consultation today. And if you mention Hey Amarillo, if you mention this show, you'll receive $100 off any service. When it comes to accounting, payroll, bookkeeping, tax prep, all that stuff, consider it done with Terra Accounting and Consulting. That's T-E-R-R-A. Okay, I'm back with John Rivette. John, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes at least eight original works by American Western artist H.D. Bugby. Actually, it's hundreds of works by Bugby. They have a lot of Bugby um, in the studio, even. You can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Um how do you feel about Bugby and Western art and, and that kind of stuff? It's uh, very different well, from what you, you do. You have a segment at the end of this question. I was going to speak to this idea. Okay, well, uh, you, you know can hold what? off on it yeah, if you want to. Uh, uh, Western art? Western art and country music are very similar. Some of the best musicians in the world are in country bands. Uh, I may not care what they're singing about or the kind of music they're playing. The technical proficiency of country musicians is always amazing to me. I feel the same way about Western art. Okay. Some of the subject matter isn't my bag, uh, but I do think their technical skills a lot of the times are amazing. Okay. So, yeah. All right. So the first question uh, that I want to ask is one I've been asking guests over the last few months, and it's... What's one thing the previous year, 2020, has revealed to you about local people? You talked about a little bit of the confusion earlier, but... Yeah, the, I would say the what has been most surprising to me is that once someone locks something in their head, it's very difficult to change that opinion. Uh, and so there has been a lot of closed dialogue, I think, on what we'll say either side of we'll say the aisle, not to get too political, um, but that kind of unwillingness to maintain a dialectic or a dialogue has been very confusing to me lately. Uh, and this whole year has been very surprising that everyone wants to share or even shout their opinion, but no one wants to listen to anybody else's. And that's that's a little concerning. Yeah, the education of any form requires an openness to talking about something you have and to have a dialogue yeah yeah or what we end up doing change. is we yeah. we hear a voice that contradicts what we believe mm -hmm. and we shut off that voice mm -hmm. and we don't even want to hear it mm -hmm. and it's hard to learn that way yeah no i mean and i think there's something that we as a nation really need to have a conversation which is about is is personal freedom um i think that we all have the right and i think one of the greatest things of our country is the ability to say what we want and believe what we want um but when it's put in the context of public safety, I, I don't know the answer to this. And I think we as a nation really need to have a conversation about the line between personal freedoms and public safety. What does this area have too much of? Uh, <laughs> I've thought about this question a lot. I'm going to take the easy way out and say too many manure particulates in the air. Okay. <laughs> There's not a lot we can do about that. No, no there's not. There's not. My uh, friend of mine's husband was a particulate scientist, and he was like, on the days it smells like cow poop, don't open your mouth. That's all I'll tell you. Yeah. I, yeah. He didn't that's one of those things. I would numbers. like to know yeah. a lot more about that, and then no, no, maybe no, I just no, don't no, want don't. to know. Right? No, you don't. Yeah. Just imagine what we're breathing in every day. Oh, okay. okay. Keeps us strong and healthy. Well, let's uh, let's move on from yeah, that. Then. Yeah. 
What does this area not have enough of? Uh, uh, so many things. Greek food. I would love some Greek food. We have so many steak restaurants and no Greek food. Uh, Whole Foods would be really nice. Yeah. Um, what Co-sign else? on that one. I think just, uh, you know, a general wish for more compassion and empathy for other people who are in bad situations. You know, a lot of people are dying right now, and I think we need to uh, be a little bit more empathetic towards that. All right. Mm-hmm. I, I can agree with that mm-hmm. easily. How do you describe Amarillo or Canyon to people outside this area? So say you're talking to somebody who wants to visit Amarillo Ramp. You're planning things ahead of time. They're coming in from, you know, Europe. Uh, and they say, what What do I need to plan yeah, for? What should I expect? Texans. Uh, we are Texans, and sometimes we are maybe the most quintessential Texans. Um, so much for the rest of the, so much so that the rest of Texas tends to forget about the panhandle. Um, the people here are honest. Uh, I think for the most part, they're actually good people. Um, and I do think that a lot of what I respect and sometimes, which is our also downfall is our DIY do it yourself attitude. Mm. We can do this ourselves and you know, that bolts bootstrapping idea that we can pick it up and get it done. And I, I do have a lot of admiration for that. Um, and so I, I mean, do. that's why we exist, yeah, exactly. but then it can be it harmful can if you're on us on the, on, on the other side of that as well. Um, but I do think that people here on the on the general are going to help you if you're in trouble, you know, and it doesn't matter what you believe politically or who you are religiously or racially, um, that if you're in trouble, I would like to believe that most people here are going to help you. Okay. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite local restaurant? Oh, you're going to get me in trouble with this statement because so many of my friends own restaurants. And so I'm going to- You can name two or three uh, if you'd like to. Well, right? I'm going to have to give the shout outs because, you know, Rin and Scott at Yellow City are amazing and they've done a really good job. Uh, I've Golden Light has been a mainstay in my life forever. Uh, I do have a mural in Golden Light. Uh, I do love Crush because they have amazing art there. Uh, amazing um, art. Yeah, exactly. Uh, OHMFs, I have been a huge fan of since they were a, a very small restaurant with a punk rock club at nights there. Yep. A lot of people um, don't remember yeah, that the, that part of the, the OHMS OHMS saga. evolution. Yeah, uh, I, I, you know, Mary and the Fullers have been really good friends of mine. And so I think all of those restaurants are, are excellent and have been really uh, done really well to maintain uh just watching my friends open and maintain restaurants have uh, been really uh, inform- informational for me to watch what it takes to keep a restaurant but to to be uh to be neutral or not neutral i think el Manatial on the boulevard okay. mexican food probably hands down that's a pretty one. legit yeah. mexican food place yeah. but all those others yellow city crush ohms uh golden light or Top-notch. Braceros, too. I'll throw it in there. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Oh, you're going to get me in trouble again. Uh, Patrick has done a great job with Palace. I love Courtney and Jason at 806, but I have to stay loyal to Roasters uh, for several reasons. Uh, My roommate... Uh, was one of the first baristas there uh, 30 years ago. Wow. Um, I used to argue with Craig in college classes a long time ago, and I've been mountain bike buddies with Dave Cooper from a long time ago. And most importantly, my son works at Roasters. Okay. So I'm loyal to Roasters. You've got a a complicated Mm -hmm. loyalty, but one that's that's deep-seated. Yeah, exactly. What's the most underrated aspect of living here? Uh, the freedom, things you can do, wide open spaces, and and you can kind of get out and clear your head. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which we've covered as mm-hmm. is essential if mm-hmm. you're producing art. Yeah, exactly. Uh, not a lot of distraction. 
Okay, and I, I typically ask guests about Cadillac Ranch or about Paladura Canyon. We've mentioned both of those things. Mm-hmm. And so when was the last time you visited the Big Texan? Uh, I actually would go there pretty regularly. Uh, I haven't gone this year, obviously, because of COVID very much. Uh, but I would say last year for sure. I went on Thanksgiving last year. I had hoped to go this year, but hmm. I was a little nervous about eating there. Um, I actually do like the Big Texan. It was one of those things I had to come around to, but realizing it from, again, an outside standpoint of what it is is amazing. And at some point, I'm going to eat that damn steak. Are you? Yeah, I'm going to train for it. You train for it? Yeah. Yeah. see what happens. I'm I'm always curious about the people who go there for holidays because I know that there is a culture of people who are like, yep, Big Texan on Christmas. That's That's what what I was doing for a while, doing Thanksgiving, and it's pretty cool. You know, I think I I like going after all the holiday food is gone because all the workers are sort of like kind of being honest and real and... I just think, you know, they've done a really good job, and I have to give them credit that that Trace Ombres beer they brew is pretty dang good. Mm-hmm. So, Okay, John, that concludes the eight straight uh, questions. I like to end by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would want listeners to know about or to experience well, here There's so area? many things going on here that are good. I think that what Sean Kennedy is doing with his Blank Spaces is really phenomenal. I think Emerald Museum of Art has done a really good job. Um, I think there are a lot of people doing great things here, but I'm going to actually be a little bit redundant and actually give a shout out to the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. Okay, we'll Uh, accept it. I've been involved with them a lot this year. I just hung 16 prints by students in their Derrick room. Um, I'm working on a mural project there next year. I'm co-curating a show on Emil Bistrom next year with them. Uh, And so I do think that... They've gone through some leadership changes, and they are currently going through some leadership changes, but I think that they have shown a real interest in growing and changing and um, not being the the scary old dark museum we all used to go to when we were kids around here, and I think they have really shown a lot of progress in, in pushing the uniqueness of that museum forward, and so I do... Um, think that the Panero Plains needs a little bit more love. Uh, I do mm-hmm. think that they have a lot of potential and one of the most interesting overlooked places in the Panhandle. Um, and I, I really would encourage everyone to give them a second chance and pay attention to some of the good things that are going to be happening there in the next year. Especially during cold winter weather mm-hmm. and a pandemic where social distancing is necessary like you can spread out in that museum oh yeah it's you can. huge yeah, and you can get and lost you can... and there's all kinds of i mean and i got i got a tour of their vaults and it's just oh, it's so much stuff in that one museum. of my favorite places in the panhandle yeah. is their vaults so yeah. there's so much in there yeah it's just a really wonderful resource and i'm really starting to see it as a major educational tool um i love sending students over there to draw and i love making i mean i've done classes where i'm like all right find an object in here we're going to grow projects based mm-hmm. on this idea and it provides such a unique kind of universal viewpoint where they talk about oil and gas and they talk about the negative impacts and the positive impacts on the culture. They talk about the complicated history with the natives uh, here. And I do think that they're, you know, they do a very good job of being historical. And I think as an artist, uh, history is always a good place to, to, to start with things, or at least looking back to see where we need to go in the future is, is an important process. Um, Spotify informed me that I listen to way too many historical podcasts. So maybe it's a personal bias I have. Um, but I do think the Panero Plains Museum is, is something um, that has a lot of potential. And I really applaud the efforts of the staff there to kind of move that museum into the new age. Okay. John Rivette, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Right, I appreciate it. Thank you very it. much, Jason. I appreciate the time. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to John for the interview. You can learn more about his 
work at johnthelion.com to see some of his art. And also thanks to Angelina Marie for editing the show as usual. Seriously, if if I had to edit these podcast episodes every week like I did at the beginning uh, of, of the podcast run, well, Hey Amarillo probably wouldn't exist anymore. Adding Angelina to this team was a good, good decision. She's a rock star. Also, thanks to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring 8 Straight every week and to Terra Accounting and Shim and Dental for sponsoring the show. This podcast exists every week because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarello. Heyamarello's executive producers include Barbara and Jim Witten, Priscilla, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Jess Heredia, and Ryan Pennington. This has been episode 190. We are closing in on 200 episodes. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.